Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, thank you. All right. Well, how do you live up to introductions like that? I'll tell you, I don't know. And uh, I still, listen, it's not that I'm, I'm still called pastor because I pastor to uh, other pastors. I'm called pastor because that's the name. Past presidents are still called president. So past, past pastors are, past pastors, I don't know, anyway. I'm still around, I do know that. And uh, yeah, God has just blessed me so tremendously through the years and the church was just excellent and just all we did. And today I'm not only going to churches that started out of our church, I'm going to churches that the church guys that came out of our church turned it over to someone else, and I call those grand churches. And I've gone to churches, and, the, and I say, and I asked the pastor, "How did you? Who do? You, how do you know me?" He said, "Because the pastor that had this church came out of your church and turned it over to me, and I've studied your books. They're all up here on the shelf, and I've studied them and listened to your, uh, you know, teachings, and so." We wanted to have you here at the church. So that's just incredible to see all those things happening. And uh, what a blessing. And you know what? Heaven's going to be wonderful, won't it? Heaven's going to be tremendous. We'll see people we haven't seen for years and fellowship forever in the throne, around the throne of God. And we'll never have to go anyplace else and be separated again. We'll be in heaven forever. And so that's why you should come to church. Church is as close to heaven as you're going to get on earth. Okay, you might go to some great meetings and stuff once a year at other places, but your church is consistent every single week. You're around people that you will see in heaven. My wife and I, there's four things that made a church great in Acts chapter 2. Number one was they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And that second one really has stuck with me because I think they're listed in the order of importance. Number one is you need the word of God. Number two is you need the fellowship of the saints because you can't fellowship with the world. Bible even warns you about that. You can be friends with the world, but don't dare be friendly with them, okay? I mean, you can be friendly with them, just don't be friends with them. You're not to get close to them, intimate with them. But the ones you do get intimate with are the ones you're going to share eternity with, and that's why you come to church. Because these people, even some of them you don't like here, you're going to find them in heaven. Okay, you might as well learn to get along with them down here before you get up there to heaven. But about a number of weeks ago, my wife and I were entering into the church building, walking up the sidewalk, and the ushers had the doors open, and there were greeters at the door, and the noise that came out of that, of that uh, entryway there and the lobby was just incredible. You could hardly hear yourself think. And I told my wife as we got closer that this must be what heaven is like, to be around fellowship forever and forever. In fact, that's what uh, John said about heaven. The sound of heaven was like many waters. Standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls, type, trying to cake, cake a conversation with somebody, you just can't do it. And my wife and I got in there. We could hardly hear each other for all the noise, but the excitement of what was going on, that's what heaven's going to be like. So I don't know what you think about COVID and coming out of COVID, but don't you dare stay home and try to watch all this on a computer screen. I don't think when you get to heaven, there's going to be a computer screen in your mansion so you can sit there and watch it and not be around the throne of God. You're going to want to be around the throne of God forever and forever. So anyway, that's just great stuff about heaven. Things out on my table. There are two books, and uh, I, I knew when I taught this, and I mentioned it, but there's, there's a lot of controversy about who wrote the book of Hebrews because Paul's name is not in there, but yet it sounds like Paul. He talks about Timothy, his friend, being in prison, seeing his friends, and he mentions things about that in the book of Hebrews, but there's no introduction in Hebrews that says Paul the Apostle. Every book he wrote starts out with Paul an Apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, not the will of men. That's how he started Galatians, but there's no introduction. Hebrews just starts out God who at different time periods and in different manners, spoken time past, has spoken unto us. But the thing about it is, is both books have the same theme. It's the grace of God. One was written to the Galatians, that's Gentiles, and one was written to Hebrews, that's the Jewish people, and the same theme. But there's something about it is the reason why Paul didn't put his name in the book of Hebrews is because this is the group that was controversial against him, fought him hard. And I read it in Finest Day, and he really brought out how these books are tied together. This is really one book. Galatians and Hebrews were one book tied together. And how he did that was, is the introduction to Galatians is the introduction to the book of Hebrews. You read this, and you go right on into this book. The other thing is, is that at the end of Galatians, he said, you see what a large letter I've written to you with my own hand. 
And all the fundamentalists jump on that and say, see, Paul had a hard time seeing. His eyes couldn't see, and he had to make gigantic letters. No, no, no. He didn't have eye disease. None of that. But what he was simply saying was, you see, what a large letter. He's talking about the size of the two letters put together because they form one book. And this is what he was talking about. So I like to tell people, get the two books and start with Galatians, go right into the book of Hebrews, and you'll find that this is why in Galatians there's no mention of the law and all the, the sacrifices and all the things, but in Hebrews there is because they were familiar with all these things, but they got confused on them. They thought that the law was the means of salvation. The law has never been the means of salvation. No man has ever kept the law and got saved. It's impossible. By the, by, the, by the keeping of the law, there's no sacrifice, there's no salvation. And so, but that's why he wrote, in fact, chapter 9 of the book of, Galatia, of Hebrews is just intricate detail about the tabernacle and all the different pieces of furniture and what all they meant. That would have meant a thing to the Galatian people. But what he gets onto them was, now that you've accepted Jesus, why are you trying to act like Hebrews? Why are you trying to act like, you know, instead of being a Gentile, why are you trying to act like they did? And you know what? We see the same thing today. I've gone into churches. They try to make their, their auditoriums look like Israel or something, like that's something special. I mean, if you want to do that, that's fine. But the point of it is it's not going to add anything special to your church. And I don't care if you just got some old barn somewhere. As long as you're there, the Holy Spirit's there and the presence of God. So that's what makes the church important. So that's my pitch, okay? So like it or not. I recommend you get both books together because they're really tremendous. I also have a book, and this is one of my introductory books in, at, uh, at uh, Andrews Bible School, Carrot Bible College, and this introduces the second year into the third year on which the curriculum gets a little more difficult. But in this one, I take eight different theologies, words from the New Testament, predestination, reconciliation, sanctification, glorification, justification, redemption, propitiation, and election, and I teach them according to the word of God and make them simple. Big sounding words with simple meanings. So you can quote these things and people you think you're a theologian, but you really know what the simplicity of the word means. One of my favorite ones is the word propitiation. It's just the, the Greek word for satisfaction. You know, the Rolling Stones sang about that. Ain't got no propitiation. Anyway... <laughs> Anyway, the word is for satisfaction, and what happens is, as Jesus Christ went to the cross, every sacrifice ever made in the Old Testament, God was never satisfied with them. Temporarily appeased, but never satisfied. After everyone, in fact, the closest sense of the five senses you have attached to propitiation is the smell, your sense of smell. Did you know your sense of smell is tied to your remembrance more than any other of the five senses? I remember when my wife and I got married, and we were in, in uh, Safeway one day buying some groceries, and I couldn't believe how much groceries cost. Every, you know, $40, it, it filled up you know, a, a basket, and I thought, good Lord, there, I could have bought an eight-track player for my car for, for 40 bucks. But anyway, we bought groceries, and we happened to be wandering through the uh, cosmetic department and all that and all that. And I looked down, there was a bottle of Jade East. I don't know how we remember Jade East. Anybody remember Jade East, you guys? Jade East, cologne. yes, the cologne, yes, okay. Well, I wore that stuff, cheap as could be, but I liked the smell of it. And I thought, surely, so I went down and I opened up the bottle and I took a sniff and I was no longer standing in Safeway. I was riding in the back of a convertible filled with, with teenagers driving through the local <laughs> drive-in. I got lost right there. Just that smell took me back there. And it was just such an incredible sense, just what that smell did. Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, Every sacrifice before him temporarily appeased God. Every time there was a sacrifice, God would go, it's okay. That's eh, okay. When Jesus Christ arose from the dead, God went, no more sacrifices. I'm eternally satisfied. I'm eternally propitiated. That's what the word propitiation means, is God is satisfied. And anybody that accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior, he's eternally propitiated with you Amen. because you're part of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can smell Bob. He smells Jesus. Amen. Okay. I can get a little weird once in a while. That's a great thing out there. One other thing, too, is I highly recommend the, uh, I have flash drives out there. And for those of you that are older and don't know what flash drives are, if you've got a car that's relatively new, you've got flash drive inputs on your car. And a flash drive just simply looks like that. And you plug it in. And this one happens to be one of my more expensive ones. In fact, it's $500. But there are 460 CDs on here and eight PDF books all on here. 383 hours of teaching. I sold this to a girl in Omaha, Nebraska. 
And so she bought it and said, what's on there? And I told her, and she said, it, will it be worth it? I said, you know, when my wife and I got married, my, my wife's father and mother and my mother and father both gave us sets of encyclopedias because they weren't going to use them. And they sat on our shelf till we had kids, and those kids grew up and got to be in junior high school, and they were going to make some reports one day in our Christian school, and they said, well, wh where do I go to get books and stuff? I said, well, we got a set of encyclopedias right here, two of them, in fact. One from her mom and dad, one from my mom and dad, and they opened up those encyclopedias and were laughing and laughing and laughing at them. Because <laughs> they had pictures of Tulsa from the 1930s. <laughs> They had pictures of different cities and it was dated back so far and their population things were totally wrong. The geography of the towns were totally wrong. They missed how many planets we had. They got into all, and my kids were just laughing at the stupidity of the books that were that old and it suddenly reminded me my mom and dad paid $1,500 for that set of encyclopedias back in the 60s or whatever and now they're worthless. You put $1,000 into Christian books, they'll be worth something from now on because the Word of God lives and abides forever. Amen. It'll never go out of style. It'll never be outdated. God will never say, oops, I made a mistake in that book. No, it's why. Once he finished the Word of God, it was complete. That's Alpha, Omega. It is over. It is done. And it's complete. So whatever you put into this will last forever. You'll listen to it again. And the girl that I sold it to, I got a letter from her two years later. She said, I plugged it in my car, and what I did was I decided I wasn't going to listen to rock and roll music anymore. I wasn't going to listen to country music anymore, and I was going to turn off all of the news stations. And I was going to do nothing but listen to the Word of God in the car. She said, my life has been totally changed. I get in there and I hear half a sermon on the way to the office and a half a sermon on the way back. Every day I hear an entire sermon. And she said, my thinking is different. I think of problems. When a problem comes, I think of scripture. She said, my whole life has become stable. Wisdom and knowledge, Isaiah 33, 6. Wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of your times yeah. and the strength of your salvation. She said, I've become stable and I'm so assured of my salvation. I never doubted anymore. She said, I know who I am in Christ, and that's because she listens to it every day. So I know this costs a lot of money, but she said, I've been listening to it for two years. I'm still not all the way through the epistles. You know, I'm still getting through those things. She said, there's so much in there. And so this is what happens when you do something like this. And of course, afterwards, you can let somebody else have it, or you can start all over again because you'll always hear something different the second, third, fourth time. Yeah. And who knows, you may be listening to this and a rapture coming. You go, no, no, Jesus, I want to hear this again. <laughs> You never know, but that's back there on the table, and that'll be a great thing for your, um, your library in the things of God. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We took up this morning the second saying of Jesus from the cross, and it was the statement where Jesus was referring to the thieves on the cross and told one of them who accepted him as Savior and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. And we took that up and we talked about the two thieves. The two thieves are types of us. He was crucified between two thieves. We represent the thieves. The thieves represent all lost mankind. And so we took all that up in type. But I want to go back to the first one, what Jesus said, because in this case, it really gets down to one of the Christian ministries that we have as individuals in the body of Christ. And in Luke chapter 23, take a look at verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothing, and they threw lots. I want you to notice the first word of Luke 23, 34 is then. Then. It's not there by accident. Then, Jesus said. Then when? Then after man had done everything he could do, after Satan had done everything he could do, after putting Jesus on a cross and nailing his hands to a cross and nailing his feet to a cross, and they then stood the cross up in front of everybody, and they thought, this guy can't do everything, but they forgot something. He could pray. Prayer is not bound by your hands. Prayer is not bound by your feet. What they thought is, we've stopped him. Man, everywhere we went to chase him, he's over here in this town. Now he's in this town. They said, if we could just get his feet out of the way. And then when he does get his feet over there, he lays hands on people. And miracle signs and wonders happen. If we could just nail his hands to a cross. If we could just nail his feet to a cross. And they finally got him. They finally arrested him. They made up trumped up charges. They did everything possible to him. Nailed him to a cross and then put the cross in place. And went, ah, what's he going to do now? And the next thing they heard was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You can't stop prayer. 
Prayer can't be bound by your feet and your hands. Jesus, in his entire ministry, there's one day he woke up and said, we, we must needs go through Samaria. In other words, we have to. The, the Holy Spirit woke me up. we got to get over there. Well, his feet took him over there. When he got there, he ministered to her and set her free, brought the whole town out afterwards, and later when all the men in town got saved. After she received Jesus at the well, she ran back into town and told all the men. I love what it says. She told all the men, not the women. She told all the men. She wasn't the greatest woman in town. You know that, don't you? She had a reputation, don't you? Well, she didn't know the women because they wouldn't fellowship with her, but she knew every man in town. She ran back into town and said to all the men, come see a man that told me everything I've ever done. They probably said, everything? Yes, everything. Come meet him. So they all went out there to try to shut him up, I'm sure. Don't spread this thing around. And they went out there, and pretty soon all the men got saved. A revival broke out, and it, listen, it started there. It really culminated in Acts chapter 8, where Philip went to Samaria, and this gigantic revival broke out. People were filled with the Holy Spirit, healed and all that. And it started with one man that said, one morning we must needs go to Samaria, and his feet took him there. And so this is what Jesus did, hands, feet, all the way through his ministry. But I'm going to tell you something too. Jesus didn't wait till this point to develop a prayer ministry. It started early in his life. His actual ministry started with prayer. He broke off in many times and just broke off and went off to pray. And it's so sad that in Christian circles today, we really run into people that haven't prayed much in their life and they don't even think about praying until their feet don't work anymore. Their hands don't work anymore. That's when they really decide, I think I'm going to start developing a prayer life. We should have been developing a prayer life a long time ago. Because I can tell you this, you can't always go somewhere, but you know what? Your prayer can go there. There was one Sunday morning I was ministering, there was a, and the usher ran up to me during my sermon and said, I hate this, I don't want to do this, but pastor, we got a call from one of, our, uh, one of our missionaries we support. This is halfway around the world. And his wife just suddenly got sick, and they're so far from a town, then there's no one to take care of them. They've managed to put her in a home, a house that was close to there, in this village, and she's there, but there's no doctors, there's nothing. And he ran till he finally found one phone, and he called back here to the church and looked and noticed that church was going on and called to tell us and want us to pray for her. I stopped the entire service. I said, we have a missionary's wife, that we don't, and we all knew her. And so we're going to pray for her right now. We all stood up, and man, we took it to the Lord in prayer. We prayed. I mean, that whole place erupted in prayer. I got back to my sermon. At the end of my sermon, the usher came running back in, said he called again, said she's totally healed. And he said, what time was it? We marked the time. It was exactly when we prayed from the pulpit. No hands could have got you there that fast. No feet could have got you there that fast. There's no jet that could have got you there that fast because the moment we spoke, that prayer was answered halfway around the world. I'm here to let you know when Jesus spoke that prayer, they suddenly run into something. Prayer doesn't have feet. Prayer doesn't have hands. Prayer can go anywhere. And on the cross, he suddenly broke out into prayer, and they couldn't stop him from doing that. It says, then Jesus said. Well, what does then mean? Well, after Satan's temptations, man's death attempts for 33 years, Jesus was still alive. They tried to kill him, but they couldn't kill him. Jesus said, I pick up my life when I want to. I lay it down when I want to. And when Jesus was on that cross, he laid down the life he had of his own free will. And his closing breath was, Father, into your hands, I dismiss my spirit. And he died on the cross there. People couldn't take it, but they tried to. Satan tried to kill him from the time he was born. He tried to, you know, had the king kill all the boys and stuff and all this. And Jesus and his family escaped. Later on, when he introduced his ministry, went to his hometown, they tried to throw him over a cliff. Whenever he said that he was the one that fulfilled that scripture that day, and they knew that spoke of Messiah. And he said, I'm the one that's fulfilling it. This day in your ears, this scripture is fulfilled. And they got mad at him, tried to kill him. They tried to kill him so many times after that, but you know what? It, it never, ever uh, was right. They couldn't get it. And Jesus would sometimes just walk into their midst. They couldn't stop him. He would just walk away from them. And they were trying to kill him, but now they finally did it. Had him on a cross. He was dying. And he just showed them one thing. Oh, you missing. You maybe see me about to die physically. My hands can't go anywhere. My feet can't go anywhere. I can't walk into some town. I can't lay hands on the sick. But I'll tell you what, I can speak the word of God. And you begin to speak in prayer. So that's what the word then means. After Satan had tried everything, after man had tried everything that came down to it, I don't care what they do to you. I don't care how much they persecute you. They can't stop prayer. How many times have I heard about it? They've been killing people and cutting heads off and stuff, but they're still praising God and singing praises to God because they can't shut your voice up. Well, they can cut your tongue out. They still can't stop it. Yeah, yeah, that's 
They still can't stop. I'm a firm believer when the Bible says you believe God with your heart and you confess with your mouth. That's not necessarily referring to your physical mouth because if you can't talk, you can still get saved. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? How many times have you heard the sermon with the woman with the issue of blood? For she said, for she said, if I can but touch him. And I've heard sermons about how she was crawling along, speaking. If I can just touch him. But you know what Luke says? She said in her heart. It wasn't, even out, it wasn't even audible. I'm here to let you know if they cut your tongue out, they can't stop your voice. That's right, that's they right. can't stop what's inside of you because prayer cannot be stopped. And on the cross, Jesus prayed. What does then mean? What does then mean? Well, there was no room in the inn when he was born. Herod tried to kill him. The religious leaders tried to lay an ambush and, and, and uh, discredit him. Crowds tried to push him over a cliff. That's what then meant. Then also means after a false arrest, a mock trial, beatings and thorns, the people still cried out, crucify him after the leaders found no fault in him. They still tried to get rid of him. Then means when the nails were driven in and the cross was now in place, Satan and man could only stand and watch and listen. And as they listened, they probably thought, is he going to say anything? You know why? Because for all the hours before the cross, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, he opened not his mouth. They'd beat him and he wouldn't say anything. They'd even yell at him and ask questions, but he wouldn't say anything to them. He kept quiet. But when they dropped that cross in its place, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Would that be the first thing out of your mouth? I'd have to think twice on that one. After years of trying to kill me, they finally think they've got me. They've nailed my hands to a cross. Oh, he can't go lay hands on the sick. He's, they've nailed my feet to the cross. He can't get off the cross. They had me hanging there, and all of a sudden they did hear something. For the first time they heard him speak in hours, and his first thing was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So what would you do again when everyone has done all they can do and you're still breathing? Would you lash out curses against them? Would you curse God? Would then you die? Or would you say, Father, forgive them? Should we ever speak our minds? You know, there's been people brought up on this thing, and they say, well, no matter what people say about you, never say bad things about people. Jesus did. These very people that put him on a cross, he said some things about them. Man, the Pharisees were out there. He let them have it. In fact, Jesus held back for chapter after chapter in Matthew, and finally in chapter 23, he couldn't take it anymore, and he let them have it for an entire chapter. You whitewashed tombstones. He said, you people that, you know, hypocrites. He said, you compass land and sea to make one proselyte. Notice this, they weren't making, they weren't making uh, souls. They weren't winning people to the Lord. They were making proselytes. It got so bad that their whole goal was to make a Gentile act like a Jew. That's a proselyte. To make him come to the temple and offer sacrifices. That's why the Galatians, Paul was so upset with the Galatians. Jesus went through this. He saw Gentiles acting like Jews when the Jews got through with them. And he, he talked about that. He, he let them have it. But listen to me, the very people he was talking about, he went to the cross and died for them. It's all right to tell the world what you think of the world. It's all right to tell the world what you think of Satan. It's all right to tell the world what you think about their ideas. But when the end comes down to it, you love them enough, you give your life for them. And Jesus did that in dying for them. So, again, he said that. Again, should we speak out our mind? The answer is yes. Jesus hated their sins, but yet he loved the sinners. Jesus hated religion, but he loved the religious people. Jesus told religious people off, yet he died for them. Jesus hated what the soldiers did, but he loved them. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, turn there with me. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, notice what it says. Peter, referring back to that time period, said, There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. When he went to the cross, he died for those ungodly men, and most of them didn't accept him, but he still died for them. That's how much he loved them. And this verse says that he, these, they brought in damnable heresies. The things they taught would send people to hell. The things they taught wouldn't send people to heaven. But what they did teach, again, Jesus came back at them and told them what they were teaching. That's what chapter 23 of the book of Matthew is, is Jesus lashing out at them. So, Jesus died for those that were crucifying him. He prayed for them. 
Jesus made a turnaround at the same time that the guards did when they accepted him as Lord and Savior. He prayed for them. They were saved and he was resurrected about the same time. The beauty of it is, is when Jesus was on the cross and Jesus made mention of them. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They literally didn't know what they were doing. They didn't recognize him as the king of glory. But Jesus, with every action that he did and every word he spoke from the cross and every bit of forgiveness he did, it finally came around where those guys accepted him as Lord and Savior. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. What was the result of Jesus in this statement he made in prayer from the cross? Jesus died again for those that crucified him. He prayed for them. Jesus had a turnaround in himself, but it came because of the power of God that raised him from the dead. But also those guards that were around there accepted him as Lord and Savior too. They were saved and he was resurrected. You know what this reminds me of? Is Job suffered in the Old Testament by the mouths of his friends who ran him down and constantly were telling him, well, just give up. Even his wife told him, curse God and die. You know, it's come to this point, everything is so bad in his life, but he refused to do that. He refused to curse God and die. He would question God many times. And there's nothing wrong with questioning God. Everybody here, if I have you, have you, ask you to raise up your hands, would often say, there's been times where things were so bad, you actually went and questioned God. Are you sure? You didn't blame him, but you questioned him. What is going on? And Job did the same thing. I don't think it's wrong to question God. I think God, in his love, will answer your questions, even in the toughest times you're going through. And Job went through some tough times. But you know what happened at the end of that? I think Job's turnaround came just like here at the time of Jesus when Jesus forgave those that put him on the cross. And the Bible tells us that Job forgave his friends. And that's when his real turnaround came. And when he forgave his friends, that one all of a sudden was what broke the door open for all those blessings to come into Job's life. So we have it again after Job's suffering, his turnaround came as he prayed for his friends, Job had been wrong. Jesus was right on the cross. And of course, Jesus again said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus' first statement on the cross was a prayer. And again, I come back to it. Prayer is bigger than we are. It reaches beyond our voice. We speak, but the power of prayer goes far beyond because I'm not sure all those people out there heard him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because Jesus was really speaking to the guards around him that were crucifying him at the time, gambling over his clothing and saw him as nothing more than an object that they could. And listen, they probably had never seen any, anyone put on a cross that had clothes like he did because yeah. he had a clothing that had no seams in it. It was worth a lot of money. In fact, they were probably going to rip the clothes off him when one of them said, wait a minute, look at this clothing. Yeah. He said, so they gambled over it to see who was going to get it. And so during that time is when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. It reaches beyond our voice. It reaches beyond our hands and feet. It reaches beyond our boundaries of travel. This is what I like. It's not bound by our need to be present somewhere. It's not bound by time. When you pray a prayer, it just goes out there and starts traveling. And listen, it can go long before. It can go long and literally is not bound by time at all. Let me give you some things about that. Jesus had reached his physical limit, but he hadn't reached his spiritual limit. Yeah. You need to understand that prayer is not something physical. Yeah. It's something spiritual. It carries an anointing like hands can carry an anointing and feet can carry anointing. But when hands and feet are bound, the mouth can still pray and the power of God can come out. Jesus reached his physical limits, but not his spiritual limits. His hands, which healed, were now nailed. His feet, which once brought deliverance, were nailed. And his time to live was short. But in his last hours, Jesus prayed for others. Jesus prayed for sinners. You know the main reason we are called into this earth is to witness? Oh, we've got a lot of other things. In fact, I often talk to people and ask them, why did God send the Holy Spirit? They said, so we could speak in tongues. So, well, what else do we do with it? Well, we prophesy. We come to church. We lay hands on each other. And we see the power of God. And we, we give utterances in tongues and interpretation. And, and, oh, it's just wonderful to praise God and praise and worship. And this is the gifts of the Spirit and manifestation. And this is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. No, it's not. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit's come upon you to be my witnesses. The most important call you have on your life is to win souls. And God said it's so important, I'm going to give you supernatural ability to do so. 
When I was in high school, I went to Youth for Christ every week. Lots of friends went with me to Youth for Christ. And one week they offered a witnessing course. They said, starting next week for a couple of weeks, we're going to offer a witnessing course. And while Youth for Christ is going on in the auditorium, we're going to have you in a classroom back here and teach you how to witness. I asked my dad, I said, you know, you think I should? He said, I'll go ahead. Wouldn't hurt. Learn how to, how to win souls. I never thought about it. The Bible never tells you how to win souls. It just says, I'll give you the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I'll give you speaking with tongues, and that'll be your power to win souls. But I never thought about that. So here's how they taught us to witness. They gave us a sheet of paper, and on one side of the piece of paper, it had all these questions that they could ask you. You had to memorize all the questions, and you flipped the paper over, and that was the answer to all the questions. So I memorized them. Well, I passed the test real good. And after a couple of weeks, I could answer everyone. If they say this, then I say that. If they say this, then I say that. Well, I went out and tried it. Most everybody asked me questions that weren't on my sheet of paper. <laughs> and I didn't know how to answer them. But the point of it is I didn't need to know how to answer them. That's what the Holy Spirit was given for. Because one thing I didn't realize was no two people are the same. They might have the same problem someone else did, but how it's affecting this person is not how it's affecting this one. But the Holy Spirit already knows what's in the heart of every person I'm going to talk to. And if I wait just a moment, the gifts of the Holy Spirit will guide me. Did you know the number one way that Jesus won souls individually when he talked to people was by a word of knowledge? He told Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under a tree. And Nathaniel said, you must be the son of God. He told the woman at the well, he said, you've had five husbands. The one you're living with now is not your husband. She said, you must be a prophet. And she led, he led her to the Lord. What are the gifts of the Spirit for? Not for Christians just to lay hands on other Christians. It's, decided, it's given by God to win the world with. Why? Because there's a supernatural devil out there, and we have the supernatural power of God that's stronger than the supernatural power of Satan to win souls. And the ultimate purpose of it is to win souls. Jesus healed multitudes. At the end of the verse it says, and many believed on him. What was the purpose of that? To alleviate a temporary body? To alleviate a temporary disease? And only do it as long as they're around? No, Jesus healed and did temporary miracles to introduce people to the eternal miracle of receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But we get all mixed up. We think this one's greater than the other. No, one is a tool to help get the other one. And Jesus said at the end of the book of Romans, he said, I came to you with signs and wonders and miracles. So that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. If signs and wonders don't follow your ministry, you're not fully preaching the gospel. That's where Pentecostals got the term, full gospel. I grew up in a full gospel church. Never understood that till years later when I read the book of Romans. Thought, well, that's where they got it from. Full gospel means we don't just speak it, we demonstrate it. By signs and wonders and miracles. And so when Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, you know what he did? He started doing signs and wonders and miracles and winning souls by the hundreds and hundreds. That's the purpose of it. So again, uh, this is what happens when we begin receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's what they're given for, for signs and wonders, but the ultimate purpose is to bring people into the kingdom of God. So it comes back to it again, prayer is bigger than us. It reaches beyond our voice. It reaches beyond our hands and feet. It reaches beyond our boundaries of travel. It's not bound by our need to be present somewhere, and it's not bound by time. What do I mean by that? It's not bound by time. Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, wasn't answered until he died. The answer came after he died. You know what it says in, in the Heroes of Faith? It said, these all died in faith not seeing the answer to what they were there for. In other words, there's people that died back in the Old Testament that were standing there, and even, even Abraham looked for a city, but he hadn't seen it yet. He didn't see it till he died and went to heaven. Later on, he saw that place. But he was there, and many things they believed for in the Old Testament did not actually come to pass in their lifetime. It didn't come to pass till later, and some of them have not even come to pass yet. But they will, because you know what? Prayer is timeless. Once it's released, it's out there, and it keeps working, and it keeps working, and it keeps working. Long past the time when my hands are gone, my feet are gone, I'm laying in a grave, the power of prayer is still out there working and working. All right? So, again... His hands were now nailed, his feet were now nailed, that once brought deliverance. His time to live was short, but in the last hours, Jesus prayed for others. He prayed for sinners, and no one is beyond the reach of prayer. 
Isaiah 53 and verse 12 says this, He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. John 17, 20, Neither do I pray for these, and the, those are the apostles. Jesus is praying. In fact, turn to John 17, 20. This is a key verse for us. John 17 and verse 20, this is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was arrested, taken in, beaten, taken to the cross, nailed, and left there to die. But in John 17, 20, this is how he prayed to the Father before he was arrested. He said, neither do I pray for these, and those were the sleeping apostles around him. They couldn't even stay awake for an hour. He said, pray with me for an hour. They were snoring after 20 or 30 minutes. Looks like church on Sunday morning sometimes. But anyway, I won't get into that. John 17, 20, he says, Neither do I pray for these, that's the apostles alone, but for those also who will believe. This prayer has not been totally answered yet. Because this reaches into eternity yet come to pass. Thousands of years, this prayer is still out there, still working today, the prayer of Jesus. And if you ever get that into your head, you'll find out your hands are gone one day, but your prayers can still be out there working and working and working. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by Him, seeing He ever lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is still praying in heaven. He's praying for us. He's praying for sinners to be saved. He's praying for us to win souls because that's why he came to earth is to win souls and to bring people into the kingdom of God. I'm going to read that verse again. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. The main intercessory prayer of Jesus in heaven is not just to meet our needs. The main intercessory prayer of Jesus is for souls. That's why he came. That's why he arose from the dead. That's why he's seated in heaven and continues to pray for souls. Oftentimes when we think about praying for people, it's for the healing, it's for their families, for all these other things, and that is wonderful. But the greatest thing you can be praying for is for your own personal life, for doors to open up. I believe one of the greatest prayers you can have is, Lord, I depend on the Holy Spirit today. I can't win anybody. I don't have the ability. But you gave me the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, before I ever walk out that door, I'm going to ask for two things. Number one, bring people across my path. And number two, bring me across people's paths to where I can let them know about Jesus Christ. Oh, hallelujah. So again, he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus practiced what he taught. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, he said, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you. Jesus on the cross was being despitefully used, and he prayed for them. Jesus practiced what he preached. And so therefore, again, he's prayed for those who despitefully used him. Look at Acts chapter 7. These are great verses of Scripture. Stephen must have patterned himself after Jesus. And in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, it says, He kneeled down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. And he fell asleep. What he was praying for was those around him to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And guess who was holding the coats? Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> Heard that prayer. Heard that prayer. Heard that prayer. And it wasn't that many chapters later in the book of Acts, a couple of chapters later, he was on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. Think about this. He killed so many Christians back here, he ran out of Christians. Honestly, he did. Went to the leadership of the Sanhedrin and said, you got any other place for me to go? And they said, well, there's Damascus out there. Think about this. Damascus is in Syria. So he started chasing Christians into Syria. He killed so many here. And they were dispersed. Every time they would kill them, they would disperse them. What I think is fun is this. Read the opening of the book of James. Read chapter 9 of Acts, and it says that they were dispersed. The Christians were dispersed. The Greek word there is diaspora, and it means the spreading of seed. Oh, they were spreading all right. They were going everywhere, but they were seed being spread. And everywhere they went, they multiplied a hundredfold everywhere they went. Made Saul so upset, so angry, but he just even dug himself in harder and said, I'm going to go kill Christians. So he went and got permission to go to Damascus, Syria, and kill Christians there. 
And on the way, you know the story how he's knocked down to the ground. I think this, this, is, this is something I think is important to understand about him. I don't think Saul understood Christians. They didn't make sense to him. They talk about the same God that he worshiped. He said, it's not the same God. That you keep using this name Jesus. We called him Jehovah. And there was this constant battle going on. He thought, this is one of the most diabolical things I've seen. They're so close to us. Well, of course we're close to them. We came out of that background. But we know him now as Jesus. That Jehovah was his title as deity. He came to humanity one day, and we called him Jesus. In fact, the angel said, call his name Jesus. And they called him Jesus. He didn't understand that. And on the road to Damascus, he was knocked down. He was ready to go kill Christians as much as he could, thinking he was doing God a favor. But he didn't understand why these guys kept sticking together. The more he tried to kill them, the more they multiplied. They'd never seen anything like this. They had killed other religions, and mostly they just scattered. But whenever they killed Christians and scattered, they just kept growing more. It's like crops, throwing seed out there. And crops kept coming up, and more Christians kept coming up. And he was running around trying to stop this thing. And he had never seen such dedication. They were dedicated to each other. He stood there and watched as Stephen was killed. And Stephen was laying there dying. And he said, Father, forgive them. And he asked for forgiveness for those that were killing around him. And they, saw, and they couldn't believe how intricately woven their lives were together until he was knocked down to the ground. And Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What do you mean persecuting you? I'm persecuting these Christians. I'm doing you a service. He said, no, no, you're persecuting me. To touch them is to touch me. And Paul got a revelation of the body of Christ yeah. that no one ever got. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Paul is the only one that wrote about the body of Christ. In fact, he was so obsessed by it, he wrote about it nine times in his books, and no one else ever mentioned Jesus as the head and we are the body. But he got the revelation on the road to Damascus. And thought, well, no wonder. And now he understood where the fingers, where the hands, where all these different things in the body of Christ. And so that's what he understood. And this again, this verse of scripture, Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, speaking here about Stephen, he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. And he fell asleep. Well, let me ask you a question. When Jesus prayed for the soldiers, was the prayer answered? Yeah. After Jesus died, your power of prayer is still there. It was still working. Matthew chapter 27, I think you can put it on the screen up here, but Matthew 27, look, look at verse 54. It says, now when the centurion and those with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that happened. Let me tell you what happened. It wasn't just an earthquake. What happened was darkness. A veil was torn from the top to the bottom in the temple. Graves opened up and saints that had died years before got out of the graves and walked into town. Can you imagine sitting at a table and saying, remember old Jim, and all of a sudden Jim comes walking through the door? What have you been? He says, i got a story to tell you. You have no idea what just happened in the heart of the earth down there. I was down there in paradise and Jesus came there, opened up the door, threw it wide open, invited us all to leave. And as we were coming up, a number of us got our old bodies back and we're just coming into town to tell you that guy was real. That Jesus guy is real. He was the son of God. Yes, he is. And on the way up, we grabbed our old bodies back. They stayed around for a while, but they died again and went on to be with the Lord. And all this is being noised around town. The veil being torn from the top to the bottom, that made major news. It wasn't to let us in, it was to let the Holy Spirit out. Because he moved out of that temple, moved into us, and today we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He used to be in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Then he moved into the temple. And by the time he got into the temple in Jesus' day, it was one of the eight wonders of the ancient world. Herod had that thing redesigned and made into something beautiful, and even the disciples couldn't get away from it. In Matthew 24, it said they wanted to show Jesus the temple, and they said, look at this temple. You ever see anything like it? He goes, yeah, but not one stone's going to be left on another. It's going to be torn down. He knew something. It was going to be torn down because it was now useless as far as God was concerned. Because in Jesus Christ arose from the dead, the Holy Spirit moved out of there, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom, and he was looking for a temple with some value to it, and on the hub a room on the day of Pentecost he moved into us and the moment he moved into us and we became the temple of the Holy Spirit he said ah, I'm home 
a temple not made with hands, a temple made by God, and I'm living on the inside of it. And that's what the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit's never had a use for that temple anymore. So, again, in Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion and those with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that happened, darkness, the veil, the graves opening up, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. And look at this, his prayer was answered. These men received Jesus as their Savior out of fear of what they saw going on. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost began to fulfill John 17, 20. What was John 17, 20? Neither do I pray for these, that's the apostles alone, but I pray for those who will one day believe. And we find that happening on the day of Pentecost. In John chapter 17, verse 20, where Jesus prayed it, now we find it coming to pass. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added to about 3,000 souls. Let me tell you what happened on the day of Pentecost. Jesus had died. He was the walking, talking son of God in this earth. To see Jesus is to see God. He said that. You see me, you've seen the Father. They actually saw Jesus, touched him, saw his works, his mighty actions, and then he died. Don't you know hell must have had a party when Jesus died? Don't you know they must have had a great time? And then Jesus was raised from the dead. I'm sure the party subsided for a while. He's back with us for, for, for a while, but he was only there for 40 days. Let me tell you some things about those 40 days Jesus was here. Jesus did not perform a miracle during those 40 days. He never healed anybody. He never even preached a sermon. He stayed with his disciples for 40 days, only with them. Saw them in the upper room, saw them later on around the Sea of Galilee, ate with them, fellowship with them. Stood with 500 at one time. You say, well, the 500 might have had some unbelievers there. No, the Bible said he stood with 500 brethren at one time. He never even saw sinners during that time. That's why the, the leaders of, of the nation didn't know. He, uh, they, they had a hard time because he wouldn't show himself to anybody except believers. He hung around with his disciples. Why did he do that for 40 days? Because what he was doing was turning everything over to them. I'm about to leave, but don't you dare budge till you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Right. Don't you dare budge till you get filled with that power and you start taking my place. And then I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit from heaven. He's going to give you power to be my witnesses. You're going to stand in my place. I'm going to give you my name. I'm going to give you my authority. I'm going to give you everything that I've been given from heaven. And I'm going to go to heaven and sit down for a long, long time. In the Old Testament, he came back and forth every day, probably two or three times a day. He'd be up in heaven and go, oops, I'm needed. He'd come down here and become the you know, angel of the Lord. Then he'd come down, he would be something else. He'd be the fire by day, or the fire by night and the cloud by day. He'd be the rock that followed Israel and gave him water. All the different things he did. He'd be come down as the angel of the Lord and deliver them out of a battle. He was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But as soon as he arose from the dead, went into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, the Father said to him, sit until I make your enemies your footstool. That hasn't happened yet. He's been sitting in heaven all this time. What's he been doing in heaven? Watching us down here because we've been given his authority. We've been given the right to do everything. He did raise the dead, heal the sick, watch people get saved, all those different things. And one day he will come back. He sat down as Alpha. He's going to stand back up as Omega. But we're all the letters in between. When he sat down, he turned it over to us. Don't you know that when Jesus finally arose off of you know, the Mount of Olives and went to heaven. The, the party began in hell again. He's gone, he's gone, he's gone, he's gone, he's gone, he's gone. And the next day a demon came running in going, Sir, <clears throat> what? There's 120 Jesuses that just walked down from the upper room? What are we going to do? 120, yeah. And then by the end of the day there were 3,120 Jesuses. All anointed by the Holy Spirit. A few days later, there were 5,000 more, 8,120 8, Jesuses. Then by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, they were multiplying so fast they couldn't even keep track of how many there were. And they were spreading everywhere. And Satan had to pull demons out of retirement <laughs> to try to stop the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it all began with one man, one seed that was thrown out there. And since then, we've just been spreading and spreading the seed of the gospel everywhere, the spreading the seeds of signs and wonders. This is what was given to us. But it comes back to it again. 
Jesus prayed for us in John 17, 20. I not only pray for these disciples who are here, but I pray for those who are yet to come. And every time a person gets saved today, it's an answer to the prayer of Jesus, who's still in heaven praying right now. In intercessory prayer for people to receive Jesus, receive him as Lord and Savior. How about us? Let's talk about Jesus in prayer for just a moment and compare ourselves to it. Jesus began his public ministry with prayer. He didn't wait till he got to a point where he was on the cross and suddenly had to break out in prayer. He had been a man of prayer from the beginning. So in Luke 3.21, he began his public ministry with prayer. Jesus used prayer throughout his ministry. He ended his public ministry on the cross with prayer. But again, often, sadly, we don't even think about prayer until we get so old, we think, well, maybe now is the time I should resort to prayer. But honestly, it was a tool given to you that, yes, your feet can only go so far. Even in your healthiest times of life, prayer still goes to places you could not possibly go. And that's why he asked us to become proficient in it. Take a look at Luke chapter 2. I love these verses. Luke chapter 2. Take a look with me at verse 22. We're going to read down through verse 27. And this is on the eighth day after Jesus was born, the day he came to be circumcised, and they brought him to the temple for that. So Mary is coming in, and her husband's coming with her, Joseph, and they're bringing the baby Jesus in to be circumcised on the eighth day, and this was commanded in the Old Testament. They read it in the Bible, and this is the time they were supposed to be there. So notice what happened in verse 22. Luke chapter 2 and verse 22, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, notice this, they did it because it was written in the Word. When the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought to Jerusalem, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Twice it's mentioned here that they got it from the Word of God, and here's what the Word of God says, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Three times it says in a couple of verses they came to the temple because of the Word of the Lord. They read it in the Bible. But notice what it goes on to say. It says, according to the, every male who opens the womb and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Did you catch that? And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. Three times it was said Mary and Joseph. They came in because it was written in the Word. And three times it said Simeon. He came in by the power of the Holy Spirit and they both arrived at the same place at the same time. Don't tell me the Word and the Spirit don't agree. I have problems with people that prophesy things that doesn't come to pass. We're living in a day today, and I think we're filled. It says in the end times, you're going to see many false prophets arise. And I think we've seen a lot of false prophets arise. That doesn't take the place of true apostles and true prophets. There are true prophets of God. But I've kind of got tired of the past numbers of years and the past numbers of months of people prophesying things that don't come to pass. And when you question them, they say, don't touch God's anointed. Well, if you're God's anointed, it would have come to pass. I mean, how difficult is this to figure out? But don't hide behind that thing about you're so holy we can't even say anything about you when the Bible tells us in John, the closing of the book of 3 John and 2 John, in the last days many false prophets will arise and we're supposed to judge them. How do we judge them? By the Word of God because the Word and the Spirit agree. They both arrived at the same time. They both arrived at the same place. And that's what happens. So here we have it again. It's simply telling us that. And so one was led by the Word, the other by the but both arrived at the same time because the Spirit and the Word agree. Someone else was there. They came to the temple. Notice what it says in Luke chapter 2. Here we have Anna the prophetess. In Luke chapter 2, verse 36 and verse 37, there was Anna, a prophetess, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and had lived with her husband for seven years after her virginity. He died at a young age. And she was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, 
but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. She moved into church. You ever come to church and wonder about all the old people that are in church? I've had young people complain. There's so many old people at this church. Hallelujah. I'm glad they are. You know why they came to church? They just soon move in. They just soon live here. I had one lady in our church, she was old, and one of the young people came here and said, don't you know you, there's a lot of things out there you could be doing? She said, I've done everything, and this is where I want to be. I want to be in church. Because you know what? This is one step between here and eternity. Church is the closest thing to heaven there is in my life, and I'd rather be here than the finest beaches of the world, the finest hotels of the world. I've been out there, I've tried it, <clears throat> it's over. The world offers nothing more to me. I just want to be around God's presence, God's people. And when they came there, oh yeah, the prophet met them at the door. But they got in there and there was Anna the prophetess in there who lived in the church. She just stayed there all the time. I love to come to church and see older people training young people in church. See, I mean, we had them in our church. We had young people stand there and they had these, my son had these shirts made for all, and they were called apprentices. They had yellow shirts with black writing on it said apprentice. And they stood beside ushers. They stood beside greeters. They worked with the praise and worship department. And it just simply showed the older were teaching the younger. We just matched up with what God told, you know, in the, in the New Testament. When we had Titus, that Titus said the way to get a church going is to have the older, mature ones train the younger ones. And that's the way church is supposed to be. But anymore, you have young people that don't like old people and old people that don't like young people when we're all called together. We are one generation. We're just one generation. I don't like this breaking down into generations, what we call generations today. My son had the youth group, and he said, I got so tired, Dad, of the youth group. And I said, why? He said, because there were those that were teenagers, and they said, well, what about, how about the generation of the late teens as opposed to the young teens? And how about the 20-year-olds and the 25-year-olds? What about 25-year-olds with children? And they kept trying to break down everything like this. He said, suddenly struck him when he was praying about it. I was, I was so confused. Everybody wants to break this thing down into smaller groups. And they want to be taken personal care of, back, you know, different than anybody else. He said, I was praying and the Lord gave me one word, Exodus generation. Well, that's two words. Exodus generation. He said, what do you mean? The Lord said, Exodus generation. That's all the way from newborn babies on their mother's breast all the way to those over 100 years old. They're one generation. We are one generation. Generation. We all work together. His generation. But the point of it was, she was in the temple. She lived there. She loved living there. And she said, I've been waiting for one thing. I want to see the consolation of Israel. And it says right there in the verse of Scripture, she was very old and had lived with a husband for seven years after her virginity. And she was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. You ought to rejoice when you come to church and see older people. That brings stability. You say, well, they can't do everything. Of course they can't. That's why we need young people. We need your energy. We need your vision. You need our maturity, and you need our money. We make a great team, don't we, <laughs> in a church? We all pitch in of what we've got, and we bless the kingdom of God. So here she was. She didn't depart from the temple, but again, served God with fastings and prayers night and day. It's wonderful to see churches filled with old people. I kind of get upset when people invite me to come. And all I see is young people around there. And they say, well, we don't like old people. Well, I'll tell you what. You won't like heaven much then. Because there's going to be a lot of people of all different ages. Oh, well, I'll look young. But you're going to look at somebody and say, well, didn't you go to our church for a while? Yeah, but you didn't want me. You shoved me out the door. Told me that I didn't belong here. We all belong here. And folks, it's just as bad the other way. There's older people that don't want any young people around. And we need each other. You understand? We need each other. Jesus said, don't cast those children away. We need them, as even the disciples didn't want the little kids around them. So again, churches are often filled with old people who almost live there. They have lived their life out. They've experienced most of what there is to offer in churches as close to heaven on earth as is possible. I received Jesus when I was five years old in vacation Bible school. As I came to vacation Bible school, I was five years old, my sister was four years old, and I have a great friend, and uh, David Shibley, and David was three at the time, and we all gave our lives to Jesus during that week. At five years old, I accepted Jesus, my sister at four, and then David at Shibley at three years old. He said, don't tell me three-year-olds can't get saved. He said, look at me, he's got a ministry today that's worldwide, global advance, out of Dallas, Texas, covers the world with missionaries. 
And he brags about how he got saved at three years old. And we got saved, and again, her name was Sister Webb. She was our pastor's wife, and later on her husband died, and so she, you know, moved off to the side as another pastor came in. But she saved at that church and just served the Lord for years and years and years. And finally, at the end of her life, she got so weak that they moved her, she, her daughters moved her into a nursing home to be taken care of. And they go see her all the time. But when the, she finally died, they came and cleaned her room out. You know what they found? They said in the drawer of her chest, they opened it up. There was a wooden box in there, and she opened it up. And there were little three-by-five cards in there with people's names on there. She had led to the Lord in vacation Bible school. My name was on there. My sister's name was on there. David Shibley's name was on there. Phil Driscoll's name was on there. We went to school together. His name was on there. When I called, called him and told him that, he broke into tears. Because we didn't understand that. She prayed for us all those years. And look at all of us now. We're serving God with ministries and stuff. Don't tell me that just happened. And don't tell me I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And Bob just heard God's voice. And Bob did what God asked for. There was somebody behind me praying that caused all that to happen. And the power of prayer may kick in stronger the older you get. But don't wait till you get old. Start young. Developing a prayer life and realize the power of prayer that you may come to a point where you can't get out of a chair. You may be so old, you're so weak and tired, but prayer can go around the world and it goes long past the time you're gone. And there's prayers in the Bible that still have yet to be answered. At the coming of Jesus, the setting up of the kingdoms on this earth, it's all been prayed for in the Old Testament. Not only scripture, but the Holy Spirit agreeing with it with prayer. And that's what caused it to happen. All I'm telling you is, Jesus on the cross did not start something new. It's something he had developed from the time he came to this earth. Prayer's always been there. But we always kind of put it off to the side thinking, well, one day I'll get into prayer. Now's the time to get into prayer. Now's the time to let your voice and your faith come together and pray those prayers and expect to see miracles happen. And you will see miracles happen. But here's the point. Most of them will be probably past the time you're gone. That's when that centurion received Jesus as Savior. That's when other things happened on the day of Pentecost. Because the day of Pentecost was the fulfillment of what he prayed. Back there when he said, not just for these only, but for those yet to come. And on the day of Pentecost, some 3,000 people, along with 120 from the upper room, received Jesus as Savior. And I'm sure Peter was probably standing there thinking, look, it's all my sermon. And forgot that just a few days before that, Jesus had prayed for those that were yet to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Can you begin to understand something? We're a team. We don't just stand by ourselves. It's not just your wonderful words and your wonderful gift that somehow is a big gift to the body of Christ. Every one of us working together as a body, the hands and the feet and all the different parts of the body that we come up and we are part of, it all comes back to this. You're needed. And if what you can do is pray, we thank God for your prayers. If what you can do is go visit somebody in a nursing home, we thank God for that. If you can go out and stand on a street corner and win souls, amen. Listen, I love revival. I love seeing thousands of people get saved at a time. But angels don't rejoice over the thousand that get born again. They rejoice over every single person that receives Jesus as Lord and Savior. When you receive Jesus, when I received Jesus at five years old, heaven had a party. (laughs) My sister a day later at four years old, David at three years old, heaven had a party when we received Jesus as Lord and Savior because that's what Jesus came for. Angels rejoice over every sinner that repents. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you tonight, Father, for what Jesus taught us here on the cross. That we shouldn't wait so long to catch the power and understand the importance of prayer, but start from a young age. Taking needs to you, to the throne of grace. And understand something. I can't be everywhere, but prayer can go everywhere. And Father, I give you praise and honor for this. In Jesus' name, with your head still bowed, I simply want this to become part of your commitment at the end of this service. That that commitment is, Lord, I've realized tonight I've let something valuable slip from me. In fact, one of the great essences of the churches in the book of Revelation was, was their prayers came up before the Lord in vials and the tears that were accompanying it are precious to God in heaven. And there's not a prayer that God ever turns away from if it's a simple prayer done in faith. He'll answer it. You may not see it in your lifetime, 
But in heaven and in eternity, you'll rejoice when you begin to see the power that lies behind prayer. This is why Satan so opposes prayer. This is why intercessory prayer is so powerful in the word of God. But we have the honor of being given this privilege from Jesus Christ himself. Father, I bless your name tonight. Thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for this wonderful pastor, his wife, his family. Father, for the people that work in this church. Father, thank you as I look out across this congregation. I see young people and old people working together. Father, for the goodness of the kingdom of God. And I give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.